Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thanks for joining us today. <laughs> Thanks for downloading the episode and listening to it now. Yes. How are you doing, Sarah? Uh, I've been sick with, I think, a cold for mm-hmm. the past couple days. Um... I think I've kind of beaten it now, but I still have some gunk up in my nose, so apologies if my voice goes nasally. Mm, sure. How are you? Um, trying to keep, like, nagging anxieties about, like, impending doom out of my mind so that I can focus on my day-to-day life. And there's no better use for that focus than to watch... The Catman of Paris. Yes, absolutely no better use for my focus than this film, I'm sure. (laughs) Uh, So this is The Catman of Paris from 1946, which is very different from the current film everybody's talking about. Cats. Which is set in London. Yes. Right. (laughs) So right off the bat, different animal. I mean, same animal, different movie. I don't know. Because <laughs> in cats, they're just, just supposed to be cats. Right. They're just anthropomorphized, whereas I presume Catman of Paris, you know, man is right there. Sure. So it's like a hybrid. Well, we'll find out, I suppose. I've never seen this movie. <laughs> Neither of you. Correct. Neither have you, listener. Exactly. <laughs> so we've sort of entered into a period where the American horror movie genre is winding down. Yes. Um, Movies are still being produced in it, but it's the downswing of a trend where the films that are coming out are stuff that was, like, already in the pipe before it was clear the trend was over, or, you know, just studios that haven't quite gotten the message yet. Generally speaking, it is believed that this instance of the fallow period for horror... Uh, in the late 40s, was more or less caused by the fact that the audience was now being made up of a large number of returned servicemen who had seen sort of enough horror in World War II. And that is not to say that those servicemen had no appetite for heavy subject matter in their films, because film noir was ascendant, but rather that the type of horror that horror movies of this period was presenting with, like, goofy monsters in gothic castles was kind of seen as, like... Mocking. Yeah, or, like, silly or or just, like, not appropriate, basically. Yeah, whereas film noir, the, like, grittiness of it, even today we characterize that as more adult. Right, exactly, yeah. Um, sort of taps into the cynicism of the period better. Whereas, like, especially supernatural horror kind of requires a letting go of cynicism. Yeah. Because cynicism is the thing that makes you want to say, oh, it wasn't really a ghost, it was old man McGillicuddy, right? Like, that's cynicism. And that isn't to say, for the record, that there haven't been examples of films that are doing... Uh, for lack of a better word, like, grown-up, or rather, non-silly 
horror. Right. Like Val Luton, even Paramount's The Uninvited, um, where they're not shying away from the horror elements, um, but those are gems mixed in with some coal, you know? Right. I also think that the distinction that is being made is between supernatural horror as being kind of not appropriate when there's a lot of real horror to be looked at, right? That, you know, in a world where these real horrors have been brought to the surface, stuff like ghosts and werewolves and things just seem silly no matter how seriously the film is presenting them. That's fair. I think, obviously, there's been a lot written about this, but I think we both agree that horror allows an outlet Mm. for these types of fears and anxieties about the world. At least where we are in the 40s right now in horror, um, because most of the genre is B-movie, schlock, Mm -hmm. or just silliness, I can understand why people are turning away from it. Well, and this is, of course, the other problem, is is in addition to just sort of a distaste for the genre in general, the quality, Mm -hmm. the standard of quality on the genre has gone down so far. Yeah. Even from, you know, Universal, which used to be like the premier studio for this kind of thing, that it's easy to see how the entire genre got painted with the same brush in terms of public imagination. So we're in this kind of downswing period, and yet here we are with Republic Pictures, uh, (laughs) who was kind of a late entry to this genre. Their first feature-length horror film of the 1940s came out in 1944. Oh, so only like two years ago. Yeah, and they are continuing their late exploration of the genre here, with the production of two films that were designed to be a double feature. The Catman of Paris and Valley of the Zombies. Kind of a creature feature. (laughs) And they called this a double horror production. I I presume then that uh, next episode will be this zombie. Well, interestingly enough, uh, Valley of the Zombies would, even though these movies were being produced at the same time, Valley of the Zombies would not actually come out until a month after Catman of Paris. Catman of Paris would show on its own for a month before being joined by Valley of the Zombies. Who knows really why that happened? I don't really have an explanation um, other than maybe Catman of Paris was done first and Republic just didn't want to sit on it in terms of, well, who knows if we can make a little bit extra money showing it on its own? Who knows? Inspiration for this movie (laughs) uh, comes from films like Werewolf of London, Wolfman, Cat People, um, all of which are really old by this point. Like, we're coming to a lot of trends late here. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, is Cat People is from 1942, but even that was sort of, at least from the marketing department's point of view, a ripoff of Wolfman from 1941, which is itself almost like... I don't know if they would have had Wolfman without Werewolf of London from 35. Right. And, you know, in today's movie-making world, 1942 to 1946, a four-year gap is not a big deal. But in the 1940s, four years is an eternity. You could have yeah. pumped out 25 different sequels to a movie in four years. Like, that's... it's and Universal has. Right. <laughs> Um, I would also just like to point out that, like, I I suspect the idea of Catman of Paris might have come from, like, a mix between Werewolf of London Mm -hmm. and 
the book Werewolf of Paris from 1933. Right. Another um, aspect to keep in mind is that a month after this film was released, Universal released She-Wolf of London. Uh, And given that we know sort of how Universal worked versus how Republic worked, it's likely to me to think that She-Wolf of London went into production first, Republic heard about it, made this movie, and got it out before (laughs) Universal even got their film out. This is the Transmorphers. Right, yeah, 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 exactly. (laughs) Correct. So the screenplay here is by Sherman L. Lowe, who was the writer of many Republic serials, including The Green Hornet Strikes Again, The Phantom, Captain Video, and Black Hawk. The director here is prolific Western filmmaker Leslie Salander, whose work we have previously seen with The Vampire's Ghost. The cast is made up of veterans of B-movies, character actors, and radio performers. Uh, The star is Carl Esmond, a 44-year-old actor who was born Carl Simon in Austria. He was educated as an actor in Vienna, made his German film debut in 1933, fled to the U.S. in 1938. He would pass away in 2004 at the age of 102. 102? Dang! His co-star here is Lenore Aubert, who was born Eleanor Liesner in Slovenia in 1913. Like her co-star, she grew up in Vienna. She married a Jewish man, and so they fled to the United States in the late 1930s. She got work as a model, changed her name to a more French-sounding name than Eastern European-sounding name. Sure. Uh, Transitioned to acting in the late 1930s on the stage before becoming a film actress in the early 1940s. Throughout the 1940s, she typically played Nazi spies and similar roles due to her accent. Uh, She appeared after this film in both Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein and Abbott and Costello meet Boris Karloff the Killer in the late 1940s. Wait, the title of the movie is They Meet Boris Karloff the Killer? Right, Abbott and Costello meet Boris Karloff, comma, the killer. (laughs) I want to watch this. Lenore Aubert retired from acting soon afterwards and uh, moved to New York and, from what I understand, uh, like started up like a like a fabric business or a textile business or something with her husband. Oh, neat. Yeah. Cool. Also featured in this film is Adele Mara, the popular 1940s pinup girl who we saw in The Vampire's Ghost as the dancer, Lisa. She was born Adelaida Delgado to Spanish parents and was transformed into the blonde Adele Mara by Columbia Pictures, for whom she worked for before Republic Pictures. Also in the cast is actor Gerald Moore, who was best known for his pleasant baritone voice on the radio. He made more than 500 radio appearances through the 30s, 40s, and 50s, guest starred in over 100 television series in the 50s and 60s, and in the 1960s performed the voice of Mr. Fantastic in the original 1960s Fantastic Four cartoon. (laughs) So, as I mentioned earlier, uh, despite being intended for release as a double feature, Catman of Paris premiered on its own, on April 20th, 1946, a full month before it was joined by Valley of the Zombies. It was released on 420? Yes. (laughs) You know, they probably released it early um, 
to try to beat out She-Wolf of London. Oh, that's a good point, yeah, because She-Wolf of London came out a month later. Yeah. So that's actually a very good point. Now, the film has fallen into the public domain. What a surprise. It has never been officially released on home video. This is my shocked face. There's, like, some old VHS releases from, like, some cheap public domain release companies. Yeah. Um, It has been occasionally shown on television, and a 16mm rental print is available to watch on our YouTube playlist. (laughs) Well, I don't know if this will be anything like Cats. Nothing is anything like Cats, Sarah. (laughs) Uh, But at the very least, I am looking forward to seeing this movie. I'm really, I have no idea what the plot is going to be. I'm super curious. Um, How much do you want to bet that there isn't actually a Catman in it? Um, I'll bet you a dollar. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so you're for there will be a Catman in it? Yeah, at least, like, like, they'll probably have, like, a cat as a prop in some sort of manner, but I'm, um, what I'm thinking is, like, either he transforms into a Mm -hmm. cat or is a half-cat, half-human monster. Okay. I am betting for... There is no Catman, and the title is, like, a misdirect. Sure. Okay. Okay. Well, folks, stay tuned after the break to see who wins a dollar. You can watch along and find out for yourself by going to our YouTube playlist on screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. After the musical interlude, we will be back to discuss The Catman of Paris from 1946, directed by Leslie Salander. See you on the other side, everybody. everyone to Scream Scene. We just finished watching The Catman of Paris, directed by Leslie Salander from 1946. So, uh, we were both right, right about there being an actual Catman. Yes. Um, you do get to see a creature on screen, like there, a monster. There is a transformation. It's not some, like, Scooby-Doo-esque thing. Um, but he doesn't really look like a cat. Yeah, I still feel like my suspicion of false advertising was, was warranted. He kind of looks like, um, like the devil from that one Twilight Zone episode. Sure. There, it's the fault of, like, not having anybody in the, in the makeup department who could pull anything off, right? Like, it's, it's not so much... What about Bud Westmore? Isn't he No, he's a PRC. Oh. Because, yeah, it's not like the usual bait and switch. What did, what did you think of this movie, Sarah? Oh, it was wild. Yeah. Um... It it starts out regular bad, and then it, like, accelerates into, like, just crazy bad. Like, like yeah. bananas. Um, yeah. I feel like the film has an identity crisis. Yes. Um, how about you tell us what it's about? Sure, yeah. I'll, I'll try and pick apart the, like, where the incongruities as we go... So it's 1895, and we're in Paris. And our lead character is Charles Renier, who is an author. And he has just returned to Paris from some time abroad in other countries that are not France. 
and he's accompanied by, uh, I think he's supposed to be like his agent or manager or something. Yeah, I thought he was maybe his patron. Yeah, Henri Bouchard, and Henri paid for Charles to go on this trip around the world, which allowed Charles to focus on writing his book, um, Fraudulent Justice. (laughs) And this book is um, about a trial that happened 25 years ago. And we never learn any of the details of this trial, but someone was tried and found guilty and I think maybe executed, but the trial was like a secret trial. And so nobody knew any details of it. And all of the like court documents and everything were sealed. Um, And they've been sealed for 50 years so they won't get opened for like another 25 years again. I suspect if this is referencing anything, it's referencing the Dreyfus affair. But in the text of the movie itself, we get no details about this trial. It doesn't really matter to the story. What does matter is that in the book, Fraudulent Justice, Renier has laid out a fictionalized version of the trial that apparently is, like, a little too close to home for what actually happened and is thus, like, very embarrassing to the French government. And this is part of why Renier was outside of France while he was writing the book and while the book was being published. And now the book is out and he's back in France and the book's making a ton of money and everybody's talking to, about him. His name's on everybody's lips. He's, he's about to become a big success. The government, which is very upset with him, they can't arrest him on charges of, like, oh, you... Like, looking at documents that you weren't allowed to look at. Right. Because how else would he get so close to the truth? Right. And they can't arrest him on that without actually looking at the documents to see if they actually do line up with the book. So this guy has been sent to the Hall of Records, essentially, to pick up the secret documents and and bring them back to the police. Meanwhile... Uh, Renier's at a restaurant uh, where Henri has taken him, and, you know, they're, they're partying because, oh, the book's so successful. And Charles' like, oh, I have a headache. I just need to take a walk. So he heads out into the night air, and this cat crosses his path, and he has this vision of, like, a howling gale and, like, an icy landscape and of uh, lightning crashing but it's negative so the lightning's black and the sky's white and then like yeah, a... i don't think it's ice i think the negative is reversed color I, I think it's just a storm well it looks like ice to me and then there's um like pounding surf against a buoy in the ocean and then the eyes of a cat meanwhile the guy with the documents is walking down the street and he gets attacked by a dude who just jumps out of a tree and lands on him while making, like, a house cat howling noise. This guy's body is later found uh, just mauled to pieces, but the documents are gone. So, Inspector uh, Severin of the French police, he immediately suspects Renier. He's like, well, these documents would have proved Renier, like, knew about the trial illegally and therefore get rid of the documents. No one can prove anything. So I suspect him. Which is a very quick jump. Right. The prefect of police is like, no, the guy was mauled by, like, claws and stuff like a cat. But it's, like, clearly a big cat to have killed a man. 
ergo it must be a cat man. Which is an even bigger jump. And the inspector's like, no, that's, it's 1895, cat men don't exist. And the prefect's like, ah, but there are records of them having existed. You mean legends? Exactly, same thing. <laughs> this prefect, I get the impression that he has just been waiting for, like, a lycanthrope. To like come through <laughs> to Paris. Come to Paris, like he's just this is uh, the day he's like, been waiting finally, for. I dreamed of this day as a child. Yes. <laughs> so um, Severin is going to start a police case against Renier. Um, they don't really have anything on him to start with, other than like circumstantial evidence. Um, but Renier does have no alibi because he has no idea what happened between leaving the restaurant the night before with a headache and getting picked up by the police the next day while still dressed in his evening clothes. He returns to meet with his agent uh, or patron, Henri, um, and, you know, and they talk about the matter and this is like, oh, you know, this is bad news for us because um, this could make it hard for me to like stay in France because all these eyes are on me. And then they also go to meet with um, basically their publisher, uh, Paul Audet, who is getting rich off the book, but is like super worried about like if the government starts pressing charges on everyone, like what's going to happen to him. Audet has a daughter, Marie, and she and Charles got really close during the time Charles was away, exchanging letters back and forth. Uh, we don't know what's in those letters, but we can guess. Yeah, they sound like they were pretty racy. Right. And she's um, like, letters are one thing, but actually being together? No. Well, because... yeah, so Charles is engaged to a rich girl. Uh, her name is Marguerite Duval. Her family's a big deal. Um, she and Charles were engaged before he left on his world tour, um, but now Charles is pretty much in love with Marie. <laughs> so there's a welcome back party for Charles at the Duval house. And he takes this as an opportunity to tell Marguerite, like, hey, I'm breaking off our engagement. Which and is, like, not a good time no. to discuss this. And Marguerite's like, fuck you. No, no, I'm not breaking off our engagement. No, fuck that. Uh, no. And Charles' like, Which oh. Which is also a great start to, like, a marriage. For sure, yeah. <laughs> no, I, you don't want to be with me? Well, I'll just force you to be. Like, yeah, that's going to work out well for you, doll. Um, Charles is like, well, I have a headache now, so I'm going to go for a walk. And Henri comes outside and is like, Marguerite, like, what's up with Charles? And she's like, oh, he's upset because, like, I told him that he can't break off his engagement. And Henri's like, well, Marguerite, you have to understand that while we were on, like, our world tour, uh, Charles came down with, like, some tropical fever. And it gives him, like, bouts of, like, headaches and amnesia. And it's actually a lot worse than I've told him it is. Like, he's he's probably going to die or something of it soon, maybe, <laughs> is the implication I'm going to give to you, Marguerite. So the best thing for you to do is just, like, placate him at all times. And Marguerite's like, oh, oh, okay. Again, great relationship advice. Yeah. So Marguerite heads off in a carriage. And we see that Charles walking around in the garden uh, with his headache. And then he sees it, a vision, a uh, howling gale, uh, uh, rain, um, uh, lightning, uh, a buoy in the ocean, cat's eyes. And Marguerite's carriage, you know, she spots a dude in an evening coat and a top hat on the grounds. And she's like, hey, Charles, you know, come over here, get in, get in the, the carriage. 
And so this guy comes over, gets in the carriage. We don't see his face. And she also doesn't because she spends the entire time telling him to get into the carriage and like, oh, I'm so sorry about what I said to you earlier and I didn't mean it and let's get back together and all this stuff. Like not looking at him, like looking out the opposite window. And then she's like, Charles, like, why won't you speak to me? And she turns and sees something and screams. And then we hear the sound of a house cat howling and the driver stops the carriage and somebody jumps out and... Marguerite's dead and all torn up, all clawed up. The uh, assailant has left their evening gloves behind, uh, covered in blood. Meanwhile, Charles shows up that later that evening at Marie's place. And her dad is out of town and the servants have been uh, dismissed. Let go, dismissed for the evening, so you know. And he's like, right, right, right. But to be TBH, I don't know how I got here. The last thing I remember, Marguerite was saying that, like, she wouldn't break off our engagement, and then suddenly I'm here. Uh, I'm having these lapses of memory. It's really starting to freak me out. I think I might be the Catman of Paris, um, because the newspapers have already picked this up, uh, the prefix theory, and are just totally running with this Catman thing. And Marie's like, okay, well, let's, like, go out for drinks and have a good time and, and try to get your mind off things. So they go out to a restaurant, and they're sitting, and they're having some good wine, and trying to get their minds off things, and Charles is like, you know, that's weird, I, I can't find my gloves anywhere. At another adjacent table, uh, there's some dudes sitting around, and a guy comes in to the restaurant, and he's like, hey guys, you know how I'm a reporter with the press, and so on? Well, you'll never believe what I just heard from the police. Um, the Catman has struck again, Marguerite Duvall is dead, totally just mauled to shreds. Uh, the police are pretty sure it's Charles Renier based on, like, the last murder plus this murder in terms of motives, and they also found his, like, bloody evening gloves. So they're on their way to arrest him right the hell now. And the other guys at the table are like, Charles Renier? You mean that guy right over there? <laughs> and Renier's like, okay, we, we should leave this restaurant. And the other guys at the table are like, mm, no, you are not. And so... A brawl breaks out in the restaurant full of guys getting, like, punched into tables and, and, and thrown across bars. Basically imagine every saloon fight from a Western you've ever seen, but in a French cafe. And there, There's no one, like, still playing the piano. <laughs> no. <laughs> People playing poker off right. to the side. Charles and Marie make it back to her place, and he spends the night there. Uh, because clearly, like, things are a little hot for him yeah, right now. Yeah, he needs to hide. Bouchard shows up at Marie's place the next morning. Um, the papers are still going wild with this Catman of Paris stuff. Everyone's pretty sure it's Renier. And Bouchard's like, hey, so you're fucked. Uh, the cops came to find me, um, talked to me. I tried to stall them as much as I could. Uh, you know, the guys you beat up in that restaurant last night said that you were with Marie. So they like, no, that's how I know where you are. And I tried to stall the cops so I could get here first. They've got your gloves. Um, I'm going to get you out of here. We're going to get you out of the city. Burchard gets Marie and Charles, and they get in Burchard's carriage, and they head off. Now, as Burchard mentioned, the cops are close behind them. So Inspector Severin and a bunch of cops are in a cop's carriage following Burchard's carriage through the countryside in a chase, like a <laughs> wagon chase. And... <laughs> Uh, Inspector Severin's got his revolver, so he's firing <laughs> off randomly at Burchard's carriage. Presumably they're warning shots to get them to stop, but Burchard does not stop. We've just got a, a chase through the Californian countryside. 
I mean French countryside. <laughs> Severin's carriage loses a wheel and, and like, collapses and overturns. And so Burchard's able to get away. And he gets Charles and Marie to this big manor house owned by this marquis who is out of the country who owes Burchard some favors. You know, Charles' like, I'm pretty sure I'm the Catman of Paris, you guys. And Marie's like, no, it couldn't possibly be you because I'm in love with you and you're a nice guy. And Burchard's like, that's right. It couldn't possibly be you because I'm your agent and <laughs> I believe in you. And Charles' like, okay, well, I'm feeling tired after all of this, so I'm going to go to bed. Burchard's like, all right, so let me level with you, Marie. It totally is Charles. Like, he's been having these blackouts. He has this tropical fever. He's got the amnesia. Uh, all of the evidence lines up. He, it's fucked. Um, so I'm going to go make some arrangements to get him out of the country till this all blows over. And Marie's like, wait, 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 wait. If he is the cat man, like, shouldn't we turn him into the police? Like, why are we trying to get him out of the country then? And Bouchard's like, well, because he's a great author who has written an important book that, like, <laughs> I am also the patron or agent of or whatever, <laughs> and so presumably getting 10% of, like, the sales on. So, no, we're not turning him into the police. Like, yes, a few people are dead, but, like, what does that really matter <laughs> in terms of, like, art, you know? So let's just get him out of the country. Uh, I'm going to make those preparations. And Marie's like, okay, well, I think I'm going to head back to Paris and try to, like, prove his innocence. And Bouchard's like, great idea, Marie. Um, just in case things go belly up for you while I'm gone and you're alone in the house with this guy who I've told you is the Catman of Paris, here's a revolver. And Marie's like, cool, I feel so much safer. And Meanwhile, Severin's back at police headquarters because, you know, carriage upturned everything. And he's meeting with the prefect who has brought in, like, an astrologer? Like an astrologer. And this astrologer's like, yeah. okay, so catmen are totally real. My grandfather wrote this <laughs> astrology book 50 years ago, proving everything. You see, every time Jupiter enters the constellation Omnis Minus, which is not a real constellation, by the way. Jupiter is real, but not the <laughs> constellation. Um, every time Jupiter enters the constellation Omnis Minus, some dude on Earth turns into a cat man and kills a ton of people. And it always happens at like auspicious moments in history. Here are the eight previous cat men because this is the ninth. Get it? The first cat man appears in 64 AD when the Emperor Nero starts to persecute Christians. The second cat man appears in 362 AD when the Emperor Julian recriminalizes Christianity. The third catman appears in 570 AD when Muhammad is born, who will found the, the Muslim religion. The fourth catman appears in 639 AD when the Muslims conquer Egypt. The fifth catman appears in 1066 uh, during the Battle of Hastings when England was conquered by Normandy. Combo breaker on the catman appears when Christians are like threatened uh, theme here. And then we don't know what Catman 6 or 7 did. Because we jumped to number 8. Who appeared in 1566 when Ivan the Terrible was executing Russian aristocrats for undermining his power, which apparently actually wasn't Ivan the Terrible's fault. It was actually the Catman murdering all of those boyars. Ivan the Terrible got a raw deal. He's actually uh, Ivan the Terribly nice. Right. 
And Catman number nine has now appeared, just as my grandfather foretold, 50 years later at the conjunction of the spheres, uh, when this a book, book is being published. about a secret trial is being published and making the French government upset here in 1895. And this astrologer's like, here's all the evidence. And the prefect's like, see, I told you. And Inspector Severin's like, okay, well, I don't doubt the calculations on the astronomy are correct. Like, I'm sure that Jupiter is in conjunction with Omnis Minus or whatever. But that doesn't mean the astrological effect of it turns a dude into a cat man is true. That's still ridiculous. Yes. So, Marie is alone at the manor house. And she is in her room, and she hears the sound of a howling cat. What was that? Huh, must have been nothing. nothing. Yeah. So she she turns the lights out to re- get ready to go to bed, and she hears the sound of a howling cat. No, it uh, yeah. can't be anything. anything. Yeah, like, it's not like I'm in a movie called The Catman, Catman of, of Paris. Paris. I'm not even in Paris right now. Right, like, we're fine. So she goes to the balcony to close the window when a dude in a top hat and a cape, making the sound <laughs> of a howling house cat, leaps down from wherever is above her room and attacks her. And this guy, he has mutton chops, he has a goatee, he has a pointy nose, he has like Romulan eyebrows, he has kind of a swarthy skin complexion. And like pointed ears. Uh, Yes, and like his hair kind of curls up or something, like horns maybe. (laughs) And he runs after her, and he's running after her, and she's got the revolver, so she's shooting him. But of course, he's a supernatural monster, so the bullets have no effect. And he chases her out into the garden, and she's shooting at him, and oh my god, he's gonna get her. She faints, and then he gets shot by the police. And you're like, wait a minute, why did bullets suddenly work on him? Well... Don't worry, all will be explained. But it's Inspector Severin and the Prefect, and they've shown up, and they have killed the Catman. And Inspector Severin looks at this guy who looks kind of like a stereotypical devil or maybe just like a swarthy Mediterranean dude, and is like, oh, shit, it is a Catman. (laughs) I guess you guys were all correct. And they bring the body inside, and Severin's like, you know, they, they, they bring Ma- they Marie. Marie inside and they wake her up. And, you know, Severin's like, hey, listen, I'm sorry, but Renier totally was the cat man. We totally shot him dead. And she's like, well, wait, you know, like, why did your bullets work and mine didn't? And he's like, my dear, you were handed a gun full of blanks. And, you know, if you're in the audience and you've been paying attention, that should be your final clue that... It's not Renier. Well, actually, Renier walking into the room and being like, hey, guys, what's up? Should be your final clue that it's not Renier. And they're like, oh, my God. Wait, if you're there, then who's the dead guy on the couch? And at that point, the Catman's like, I uh, am the Catman. Cat <laughs> I'm not quite dead Man. yet. <laughs> and we find out that the Catman was Henri Bouchard this whole time. And that I called it. By the way, as we were watching the movie. Yeah, you got it like halfway through. Yeah. Um, you got it when Burchard showed up to Marie and Charles and was like, I need to get you out of the city. So, Catman 9 is like, this is my final incarnation. And they're like, okay, why though, anything? And he's like, well, you see, I was in the secret trial in the form of a house cat. <laughs> because no one was allowed, no reporters, but cats were okay. 
And so I knew all of the secret details. And then, in man form, I psychically <laughs> gave the information to Renier oh. without him knowing it. Oh so he thought it came to him in a dream, and he thought his book was fiction. But it was actually true. <laughs> and then, to stop Renier's career from being ruined, I totally killed that guy at the start of the movie. And then, to stop Renier's happiness from being ruined, <laughs> I totally killed his bitch fiance. And that's my story, Catman number nine, out! And then he dies and turns back into Burchard. Without having to answer, so why were you attacking it, Marie? Any follow-up questions. <laughs> um, no cross-examination. Exactly. Uh, the end. Yeah. Yeah. This movie is bonkers. It is immensely dumb. I, I don't know how movies get made on, like, the day-to-day -day basis of a movie-making expedition. Okay. Where, like, how you decide what scene you're shooting today or mm -hmm. whatever. But I feel like, at least in the case of the bar fight and the carriage chase and a couple other moments where there were comedic relief but in the style of, like, Western comedic relief, uh, the director needed to be reminded, no, you're, this, this is a horror movie, not a Western. Well, I think what we're seeing here, like is that Republic had no one working for it who knew how to make horror movies, right? Yeah. So they know that this is supposed to be a horror movie, but they have no choice but to make the movie the way they're used to making movies. Like, you can tell, for example, that the writer wrote serials because characters are constantly recapping the plot or giving exposition back to one another, mm -hmm. like, throughout the whole movie, as if, you know, we're in the next chapter, yeah. Um, I will say, I think the movie is written to be a horror movie. Yes, yes. I think the intent is horror, absolutely. Um, but, you know, you can tell the director made westerns because there's a bar fight and a carriage chase. This movie is like the horror movie equivalent of, like, Jack Skellington making Christmas in Nightmare <laughs> yeah, yeah, Before yeah. Christmas, where it's like he just, he wants to make Christmas, but the only tools he has to make Christmas are, like, Halloween tools, right? The only tools we have to make this horror movie are Western movie tools. And there's just, like, so many elements here getting mixed up together that are so, like, inexplicable to me. Like, why is this movie set in Paris in the 1890s? Like, if we're gonna make a western horror movie like let's lean into it and have it be like you know louisiana in 1880 or something well if they truly are trying to rip off she wolf of london mm. they're like well we can't just do london but we still want it to be like european so let's right. do paris so everyone has to be french oh but france has gone through some things mm -hmm. the last few years okay, right. when was the last time france was okay. Was not going through things. Um, like the 1895? Perfect. Yeah. So we'll set it then. It also, like, gives them some of that, like, Phantom of the Opera cred. Like, like the 1890s France is, like, an established horror setting. You know, you're not taking a chance doing something new and different, like doing a horror western would be. And I feel like someone also probably read, like, the Coles Notes versions of Guy Endor's Werewolf of Paris because it's about a werewolf. It's historical fiction, but the main character is a werewolf to justify how he can go through these different decades and these mm. different wars. So I feel like that idea spun into the multiple nine cats. lives of the cat man. Yeah. Well, and then nine the nine lives of the cat man. Yeah. Which would have been a better movie. Like I would have totally watched this movie about like this cat man who shows up at like times in history when bad things are happening to Christians for some reason. Um, 
the other thing here is when you're watching this movie, like it starts out as just kind of like a ho-hum B-movie, you know, normal level of bad Jekyll and Hyde ripoff. Yeah. Right? Like, it's it's got the same thing that Werewolf of London did, where the version of turning into a monster is just a version of the Jekyll Hyde thing. Yeah. Right? And then it just, like, keeps layering on things that make it more and more bananas. And the, the whole reveal sequence at the end where they have to, like, retroactively justify the plot, that also feels right out of a serial where, like, you know, you don't know who the villain is, and then they pull the hood off at the end, and it's the guy who was in a wheelchair the whole time, and now they have to explain to you how he could walk. Yes, I think, like, that's a great explanation of why the ending is the way it is. Um, Because the thing about serials is each chapter, or at least the ones I've seen, Mm -hmm. end with Batman being blown up or thrown off a cliff, and then you come back the next week, and it's like, oh, actually, he uh, ducked out of the way of the explosive. Yeah, yeah. He's fine. That's how cliffhanger, yeah, like... Yeah, like, they gaslight the shit out of you. Yes, movie serial, (laughs) like, real, like, there are movies today, the modern Hollywood blockbuster descends from movie serials because the modern Hollywood blockbuster is based on Star Wars and Indiana Jones, which are movies that are homages to serials. So I feel like modern movie audiences are familiar with the idea of the cliffhanger, but in like modern movies, it's like, oh, the hero got out of it because of ingenuity. In real movie serials, the hero got out of it because of like tricky editing, where like you see the car explode, but you don't see the shot of Batman leaping out of the car before the car exploded. But then when they need to explain to you how he's still alive that's when you see that shot in like the flashback and you're like but you didn't show that to me the first time yeah and that's the explanation right so like serial i guess the point we're trying to make is that like people who write serials are used to like gaslighting you (laughs) like bullshit explanations for things yeah like i i can buy the first murder happening to protect the book or the, the author author's career whatever but to protect his happiness, well, like this is he would have needed his gloves. This like, is the why thing that's weird. This is, this is the thing. This... So, Catman number nine, like, has completely different personality from the first eight because the first eight are like, oh yeah, he shows up like and murders people by the score, and it gets blamed on like autocrats. Like, th- like that's that's the deal. Yeah. But Catman number nine is m- simply killing people to help out his buddy. Uh, Charles Renier. He's, like, he's the Louis of, of Catman. He's got, like, Catman number nine has a crush on Charles Renier, <laughs> who looks like Anton Walbrook, by the way. But, like, oh. that's it. Because, like, he's devoted to Charles Renier, so he's gonna kill everyone who gets in Renier's he's, way. he's an old bachelor yep. as well. It all fits. Yeah, it all fits. <sighs> he's gay. That's why he goes to kill Marie, because mm-hmm. then he'll just have Renier Ex- to himself. Exactly, yes. One thing that I did notice about this movie is there's a lot of extraneous characters. Oh, yeah. Like well, the, part of that is the, like, Poverty Row. Yes, it's the whole thing where we're giving, like, work to every, like, bit player who works for Republic. Yeah. Like, the the fight in the restaurant where, like... You know, it's like four like new a, characters. Yeah, and we get like a little bit of backstory about each of them as yes. they are talking. Like, yes. that one's a reporter, that one's a failed artist. Yeah, exactly. He's drawing on the napkin, yeah, a yeah. picture of Marie. Yeah, yeah. Like, like it, it's oh, Yeah, everybody gets like a little bit of something to do. 
because it's not about telling a story. It's about keeping... Providing work. Yeah, providing work to everyone on the studio payroll, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's a bafflingly silly movie. Yeah. It is neat, though. Like, we've seen horror movies that are more akin to psychological thrillers, Mm -hmm. just plain, like, gothic thrillers, film noirs, but I've never seen... A horror movie that just tries to be a Western so hard. I mean, you know, one of the things about the format of this show is outside of the first episode where we covered, like, pre-feature film films, um, we made the decision that, like, our criteria for what is a film when we say we're watching every horror movie ever made, our criteria is feature-length theatrically released. Which means that we haven't been watching serials, right? Like, we haven't been watching The Mysterious Doctor Satan or The Return of Shandu or, you know, whatever. The Phantom. Yeah, exactly. So we haven't really had a chance to, like, see horror tropes get bent into the form of serial tropes. So this was kind of fun for that reason. It's a bad movie, but, like, if you open yourself up to it being bad, I think you can have a fun time, like, dunking on it. Yeah, like, (laughs) Ben didn't go into this because it would be extraneous, but the night after the murder, so we see the murder happen. Right. Um, Oh, God. Yes. The very first murder. It happens on a street, and we get a shot of a seemingly like a giant cat walking down the street, and then Inspector Severin is like, scat! And it's actually a model with a regular size cat in it and he's like ah prefect i've had this model made up of the crime of scene. the crime scene overnight to give you a better idea of the crime scene right like you, and they, you're they in only... the city where the crime t- <laughs> you can just walk to the crime scene and of course the only reason they do that is so they can have a giant cat walking the streets that um, you can put in the trailer and be like the cat man of paris and, yeah. and make people wonder what they're gonna see yeah so stuff like that is fun. There are quite a few cats, um, and a lot of them are black cats, and they are shot beautifully. The cat man, quote-unquote, that appears in this movie. We've already said he doesn't look really like a cat. There's, on the poster, there's a cat man. But, like, this movie does not... Yeah, but if you look at the poster and then the design for the creature, you mm-hmm. can kind of see similar elements, yes. like the pointed ears, like the hairiness of the face. Yeah. But it, it's just clear, like... Something got lost in translation. All they needed to do was give him more, like, give him fur. Like, make him like a wolf man type where he's got fur all over his face or something. It just, nothing about him screams cat to me. Like, if I saw that dude, I wouldn't be like, ah, a cat man. Like, also the fact that they use just like a cat yowl. Yeah, like, yeah, it's not like deep. a cat in heat. It's not like a jaguar. Well, and they didn't do any, like, sound work to make it sound like it's coming from a creature the size of a human. Yeah. Right? Like, he's still just going like, Mrawr! like he's like a little house cat. Like, Yeah, it's not good. Um, and finally, if Borchard is the cat man, and Charles is fine, and isn't turning into a cat, what the fuck is up with his weird visions? Oh, he still has tropical fever stuff. What does any of those... But what... Why those images? What do any of those images mean? It's um, probably, like, visions of their journey around the world. And then the cat is leftover residual psychic energy of Henri giving him, like, 
mental notes about how to write the book. Okay, it's just, <laughs> like, I don't get it. Like, all I want is just, for every decision in this movie, I just want to know why. <laughs> Alright, let's move on to ranking. Yeah, for sure. Um, cool. So then we are agreed that this is a horror movie just yeah. executed poorly? Yes. Fantastic. So, um, I was looking pretty much at the bottom of the list, actually. Um, I would... Consider putting this around 122, The Monster Walks. Ugh. The lowest I would put this is by Condemned to Live at 132. Yikes. So a big part of this is the poor execution. We agree that it's a horror movie script, but it's not a very good script. No. And it's not a very good horror movie no. script. Um, but it is at least horror. The reason I was thinking... Not going higher than The Monster Walks is, um, above that is Spider-Woman Strikes Back, and that at least was, like, trying to, like, I don't know, do something. (laughs) (laughs) Whereas this is just a straight rip-off, um, and I wouldn't put this lower than Condemned to Live, because Condemned to Live was trying to deal with, like, different tropes, and it struggled in its own execution. It was, um, like... The guy, he, he's condemned to live, but he's like a vampire or yes. something. And like the, he kills he only himself strikes, at the end. Yeah, and he, he only strikes in like total darkness and yeah. stuff. Oh, I remember. <laughs> you remember all. It's my curse, Sarah. <laughs> uh, so that's my range. So I'm a little higher than you. I'm not a lot higher than you, but I am a little higher. Because a lot of the films down here in your range, like... They're bad, like this movie are, is bad, but they're almost like a different a different plateau of bad. Incompetency? Like, yeah. Like, Condemned to Live was boring. Like, I, I nearly fell asleep watching it. It's, it utterly fails to engage you. Like, say what you will about the inappropriateness of, like, a bar fight and a carriage chase in the middle of a horror movie, but, like, it had me sitting up and paying attention. Sure. Um, you know, and then you have, like, House of Mystery is just, nothing torture ship is almost incomprehensible as a movie wolf blood like this movie at least did have a cat person in it right it's not just a fake out it's not all in his head monster walks like this is i think it's definitely better than monster walks because you know this has like a twist ending right monster walks is just it turned out it was the dangerous ape in the basement the whole time like exactly like you thought it was um, I just had a spot picked out. Oh. Which was 110 uh, below Song at Midnight above Jungle Captive. So I think we should look kind of in the range between your ceiling, which was um, Monster Walks, and like where I was looking. So this is between 110 and 120, essentially. So at 115 is La Llorona. I mean, that's such a tough direct comparison. They're such different movies. And La Llorona is always, like, a movie I have a hard time knowing how to rank things against because, like, we have so many handicaps with that movie in terms of, like, not speaking the language it was made in, kind of having a bad translation to deal with. And then, like, also how much of a handicap do you grant that movie because... You know, it's a Mexican film from the early days of Mexican film. So obviously it can't compare to Hollywood. So it's not quite fair to judge it on the same level. So I I never quite know what to do with La Llorona. I do think this movie 
is probably more competent and tells its story better than La Llorona does. Because really? La Llorona ends up being about how it's not actually a curse of these aristocrats. It's actually their evil servants framing them this whole time over the course of 300 years. Like, that's what the story was at the end of the day. If I remember correctly, yes, it was the servants attacking them, but their servants were, like, Aztec people, and it was... I kind of took it as, like, these Aztec people taking revenge on the colonizers. Yes, but that was a reading we were put... Like, the movie wasn't sympathizing with them. Okay. The movie was in sympathy with the rich people. Like, the movie's about, you know, the fear is these Aztecs rising mm -hmm. up against us. Like, that was a, a reading we put in the movie. I think also if you consider La Llorona and <laughs> Catman of Paris both have... <laughs> A long history of other examples of these creatures yes. coming back. Yes. And in Catman of Paris, we just get told. In La Llorona, we get shown. Well, yeah. La Do you Llorona. prefer being told or shown? Normally shown, but on the other hand... With La Llorona, it kind of took us out of the horror element. Well, and it took us out of the, the story, right? Because La Llorona is almost like a almost like an anthology film where we stop and get like a full account of each version of these stories. It's kind of the same problem that um, La Main du Diable had where like the story stops for you to get like, here's the whole train of how we got here. Yeah. Um, whereas the Catman of Paris, the story doesn't stop. It's just another moment for you to laugh at like the insanity of this movie. And, you know, if we look at kind of what's below La Llorona here, it's the monster. It's 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 movies that don't feel competent, like or or at least are barely competent. Like this movie is made by a guy who makes a bunch of westerns, and it's nothing special. There's nothing really fancy going on here. These guys are not auteurs, but they know what they're doing. They know how to make a movie at least visually engaging. There's some use of shadow. There's some use of moving camera. It's nothing super special, but it is better than like. Sex Maniac, or Crime of Dr. Crespi, yeah. you know, uh, stuff like that. And then one of the reasons I landed on the spot I landed on was looking right below Song at Midnight. It was just that, like, movies like Jungle Captive and Return of the Ape Man and The Ape Man, it's hard for me to, like, call things from those movies to mind. They just feel very, like, boring and lifeless and, like, going through the motions. And the one thing this movie isn't is, like, going through the motions, like... No, all of these movies are bonkers. Like, Ape Man, that's the one with Bela Lugosi, and his sister, like, hunts ghosts. Right. Um, above that, Monster Maker, that one's a little bonkers as well. Return of the Ape Man is, like, a caveman, not an ape man. Right. Like, that... These are all kind of bonkers, so I feel like this is a good range for it. Okay. Um, and I think if we want to look at competency of making a horror movie. Right. Black Moon, right above La Llorona, while racist, mm -hmm. is better at making it a horror movie than Catman of Paris. Yeah, I mean, Black Moon is a movie that I, like, try not to remember. Yeah. But I think, I think you are right in the sense that it's a lot more, like, if I took a random scene from Black Moon and a random scene from Catman of Paris. And I sat someone down and I said, what genre is this? I think they would figure out maybe that Black Moon is horror before, long before 
they figured out that Catman of Paris is horror. Yeah. So I do kind of see what you're saying there. So I'm pretty good with that. Cool. All right, so entering the list at 115 out of a total of what is now 134 is The Catman of Paris from 1946, directed by Leslie Salander. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the other episodes we've mentioned today, such as when we covered Werewolf of London, Wolfman, Cat People, etc. The films that this one is trying to rip off. Mm -hmm. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can reach us through our Ask box on Tumblr, or you can email us directly at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com. We'd also love to chat with you on Twitter at underscore screamscene. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and SoundCloud. And you can subscribe to the show through our RSS feed. If you'd like to help the show out, we'd really appreciate you spreading word about the show through word of mouth or leaving a rating or a review on the service that you listen to the show on or heading over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash podcast, where you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. Patrons at the $5 and $10 level get access to bonus content provided solely for those patrons. And if we reach our first Patreon goal, we will start to do monthly bonus episodes about horror-adjacent films, uh, such as Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein or Abbott and Costello Meet Boris Karloff the Killer. I think it would also be interesting, um, once we've reached that goal, we can discuss it, looking at horror serials. Because they're horror, but they aren't films, right? Right. As we, we've kind of just said earlier in the episode that you've just listened to. So maybe we'd be able to cover that kind of content as well if we reach that goal. For sure. So once again, that's patreon.com slash podcast. So what are we watching next week, Ben? Uh, this week at least was a horror movie. Last week was not. What's next week? Well, Sarah, next week we return to RKO. Oh. For the final Val Luton horror movie. It's Bedlam, starring Boris Karloff and directed by Mark Robeson. Great. Cool. Well, we'll see if they go out with the Bedlam. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I, it's it's a bittersweet occasion. Yeah. Because it's, it'll be nice to see a good movie, but... It'll be the last one for a while. Right. <laughs> well, we will see you then, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye. Bye.